Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. A tiny local election in the Central Valley caught our attention last month. A group of candidates promising change took control of this big organization run by farmers that delivers their irrigation water, Westlands Water District. The Westlands Water District, the nation's largest agricultural water district, serves over 700 family-owned farms that grow crops that are used in California, shipped across the country, and exported to markets around the world. It covers a stretch of land east of I-5 from Firebaugh to Kettleman City, and it produces crops like tomatoes, garlic, almonds, pistachios, cantaloupes, and pomegranates. This is the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Coca. I reported on Westlands a lot during my many years covering the Central Valley. And if you talk to people who know the world of California farming, like author Mark Arax, they'll tell you Westlands is more than just a water district. It remains the the big bad guy of agriculture. Westlands is an empire built on imported water and political power. It's been the biggest, fiercest fighter in the battles that we sometimes call California's water wars, facing off against environmentalists who've criticized the wealthy farmers of Westlands for hogging precious water. But these newly elected Westlands board members, who were all farmers themselves, are now saying, we need a new strategy. It's a sign of change in the agricultural heart of California, a recognition that water is scarce and large-scale farming will have to shrink. Reporter Dan Charles brings us this story, part of a collaboration with the Food and Environment Reporting Network. Board meetings at the Westlands Water District have a kind of small-town feel. A few dozen people packed into a cozy room. The board members, all men, looking very farmerish in their insulated vests and dark jackets. The board president, Ryan Ferguson, never takes his trucker cap off. Bobby, do you have any other corrections or additions to the agenda? I do not. Thank you. At this meeting on November 15, there's an unusual energy in the air. The previous evening, an email went out. Ferguson has not been re-elected to a seat. The candidates who were elected are promising change. 
meaning an end, probably, to the 20-year reign of the pale, stern-looking man sitting up front alongside the board members, General Manager Tom Birmingham. Birmingham's a divisive figure. For decades, he's led the fight to keep water flowing to California's farmers. His critics call him arrogant, autocratic. Here he is in 2013, debating an environmental advocate about the cost of protecting fish like the Delta smelt. Uh, you're, you're just wrong. You're absolutely wrong. The way in 1973, when the Endangered Species Act was passed, I cannot Im imagine one member of Congress who would have said, we're going to put people in a food line because we want to protect a fish that is smaller than my, than my little finger. Today, though, Birmingham looks tired, as though he already knows he won't be a Westlands employee much longer. Birmingham declined our request for an interview for this story. There's a woman sitting in the audience near the back, listening quietly. More than anybody else, probably, she built the Coalition for Change that's sweeping away the old guard here. I'm Sarah Wolf. I am a farmer in Westlands Water District. Sarah Wolf grew up in one farming family, married into another one, the Wolfs, who run one of the biggest operations in Westlands. I'd gone to meet her the day before the board meeting at the Wolf Farm headquarters, which feels more corporate than agrarian. I wanted to know how they'd pulled off this coup and why. I think I just didn't feel that it was appropriate to just go along to get along, that we weren't making positive strides. To understand what she wanted to change at Westlands, you have to go back in time to the 1950s and 1960s, when the farmers here got the federal government to build a new dam and canal and connect their land to the Central Valley Project, delivering water from dams hundreds of miles to the north, like Shasta and Trinity. It is a pleasure for me to come out here and help blow up this valley and uh, the cause of progress. President Kennedy flew out in 1962 for the groundbreaking. It was the last stop in a tour of three new water projects. This project, the Frying Pan Arkansas, and the project in South Dakota represent 10, 20, and 30 years' effort of devoted citizens. Things do not happen. They are made to happen. The farmers of Westlands made this happen. We had a fair amount of clout legislatively. We were a, you know, a very rich district. We had politically active landowners, and um, we hired very talented lobbyists. But the world changed. Senator from Louisiana. Uh, Mr. President, this bill marks the culmination of one of the most controversial, one of the most difficult... In 1992, Congress passed the, the Central Valley Project Improvement Act, which said Westlands and other farmers can't take more water from those northern California rivers if it threatens the survival of wildlife. So when droughts hit, farmers got less. Some years they got nothing. They were shocked, furious. And Westlands led the fight to overturn those rules in the courts and in Congress. Here's General Manager Tom Birmingham at a hearing on Capitol Hill in 2016. Where's the outrage that it's governmental policies that have created Zero water supplies for communities in the San Joaquin Valley. He got into verbal tussles with members of Congress like California's Jared Huffman. Mr. Birmingham, I, I listened carefully and politely while you misstated the facts, and so you get to listen carefully to my correction of them. Uh, and, and then I hope friend, I have an opportunity to correct the correction. This is my time, Mr. Birmingham. You had your time. 
Sarah Wolf became increasingly convinced that this fight was futile. Farmers by themselves couldn't get their way anymore. What we do is important. Growing food is very important. It's something to be proud of. And I want to be proud of what we're doing. But if we're just fighting with people, I don't, I'm not very proud of that. The thing is, you can make progress in ways that don't involve fighting, she says. Let me show you something. How far away is it? Just down the road. It's okay. We drive to another part of the wolf farm. She points to a line of trees just north of us. That's a dry creek bed that carries water from the foothills when it rains. Every seven years or so, there's a big flood. It pushes out into the floodplain. Not this right in front of us, but back where you can see more brush. In the past, the water just sat there on the silted up floodplain until it evaporated. But that water's precious, Wolf says, and we've now built a way to capture it. So this is what we call the big ditch. Next time it floods, she says, the water will flow in there, and then we'll pump it over this earthen levee into that wide terraced field. It'll soak into the ground all the way down to the aquifer, our underground reservoir. It's good for us. We can pump that water from our wells later, she says, and environmentalists like it too. When Wolf was appointed to a seat on the Westlands board in 2012, she tried to push this kind of project and generally just sitting down and talking with others, including environmentalists, to find solutions. She ended up butting heads with Tom Birmingham, partly over policies, partly over Birmingham's personal style. He's an authoritarian, even a dictator. <laughs> you know, it's, it's his show. In 2018, she resigned and went public with her criticisms. She became by default the opposition, and other farmers started reaching out to her. They were increasingly desperate as one drought year followed another. In four of the past nine years, Westlands got no water at all from the Central Valley Project. And a new law means farmers soon won't be able to pump as much water from their depleted aquifers either. Here's one grower, Justin Diener. I think this farming community is, is really struggling at this point. There are a lot of people kind of looking at the walls, wondering what they're going to do. I sat down with many of them, gave them history of what I had seen, and they started attending meetings. And they started being challenged by the general manager when they would ask questions. And they got riled up and upset. And, you know, we made it clear that if you want to make a change, you've got to, people have to step up and get on the board and do something. Earlier this year, they formed an alliance, called it the Change Coalition, and settled on four candidates to run for the board. Justin Diener was one of them. They laid out their program, store more water underground with projects like the Wolf's Big Ditch, stop spending so much on litigation and lobbyists, improve relationships with what the group called moderate environmental groups. The change candidates all won seats. Of the four incumbents up for re-election, only one decided to run and he came in last. It was a repudiation of General Manager Tom Birmingham. A week later, he announced he'll be retiring at the end of the year. The real meaning of this change at Westlands will only become clear in the coming years. The district probably still will fight for all the water it can get. Maybe it'll be a little nicer about it. The big change may be farming in a way that accepts the fact that water is scarce, because we're living in a different climate now. Here's Justin Diener again. He won that board election, got the most votes of all. What is the sustainable farming footprint in Westlands? I personally think it's around 300,000 acres. That's about half the amount of land that Westlands farmers once grew crops on. 
That means even when there's plenty of rain, farmers will have to restrain themselves. Instead of using it to grow more crops, they'll store it underground in the aquifer instead for the next dry year when they need it to survive. Mark Arax, the writer, says these diminished expectations are a historic shift. I don't think that's window dressing. I think it's a real change. And if that's acknowledged, that's a big story. Westlands now, this behemoth, has cut itself in half. I I grew up here, right? The day after that board meeting, I went to see Justin Diener on his farm. He showed me garlic fields and almond orchards, also land they've just left there fallow to save water. Diener came back here to live and work with his father six years ago, after working for 10 years in banking. It came from thinking about life and purpose. I have kind of come to the realization in life, and maybe everyone does at some point, that we're all going to be dead someday. And, you know, you can make money, be happy, whatever. But, you know, is can you make the world a better place with what you've been given? For him, that means try to find a way forward for his farm and Westlands with less water. For the California Report, I'm Dan Charles in Fresno County. And now from the cost of water to the cost of getting health care for everybody who needs it in our state. We're going to hear now from an author and activist in California's disability community who's had a tough time trying to figure out how to get the care she needs to survive. Alice Wong hosted the popular podcast Disability Visibility from her home in San Francisco. She uses a wheelchair and a ventilator to breathe, and she's written a lot about how people with disabilities have not just felt overlooked in the pandemic, they felt expendable. Earlier this year, she was finishing the final edits to her memoir, Year of the Tiger, An Activist's Life, when she suffered several medical crises. She spent four weeks in the ICU, she lost her ability to speak, and she started using a text-to-speech app, which you'll hear in her story. Here's Alice. I was born with a progressive neuromuscular disability, and my life has always been centered on care, both receiving and giving it. When I could no longer walk and started using a power chair, needed assistance breathing, and experienced difficulty swallowing and eating, I learned how to direct and manage my caregivers like a boss. I've done it ever since I was a child. This year, however, presented the greatest challenge in my abilities because the stakes were higher and higher. Over the summer, I experienced several medical crises such as a collapsed lung and an inability to swallow, which resulted in a tracheostomy that's connected to a ventilator. I also now have a GJ tube that delivers liquid nutrition to my small intestine and stomach. And now I speak through this app. In the span of four weeks, my entire world was turned upside down. One of the biggest stressors upon leaving the hospital was how I would get my intensive medical needs covered at home. The discharge planner said that a person like me with my disability and new care needs who is on Medi-Cal, California's Medicaid program, should consider going to a self-acute nursing facility unless they had family support 24-7. It was the only time I cried in the hospital.
That sound you just heard is if my hospital bed, one of many types of medical equipment I depend on. Needing total help with my daily activities has cost me greatly. The necessary close contact with your body, the lack of privacy and spontaneity, the presumptions strangers have about your competence. My life is in my caregiver's hands and this is a cost I must pay because I want to live. Having multiple caregivers, training and communicating with them, and dealing with unexpected ups and downs when they are late, sick, or forget to show up has taken a lot out of me as I try to recover and heal. What I learned this year and what I've known in my bones during my entire 48 years on this planet is that nothing is certain and that we must build a world that acknowledges our interdependence with one another so no one ever falls through the cracks. I already receive hours of care through two programs, but it was impossible finding workers because of low wages, worker shortages, and the fluidic nature of the workforce. So I resorted to hiring a team of private pay caregivers to augment the help I receive from my family. A generous friend launched a GoFundMe campaign to finance the indefinite costs of my private pay care which is approximately $600 per day. This is something no disabled person should have to do to live in the community. Knowing how close I was to being institutionalized still haunts me and brings us hearing clarity on how our society is focused on capitalism, productivity, and independence which are all scams. That's the alarm from my ventilator which happens when I am disconnected or something is wrong and my caregivers or family members have to immediately check on me. My caregivers care for me but do they care about me? I believe they do but this is probably an unrealistic expectation because at the end of the day it is a job. And yet, care work is different. We share mutual vulnerability shaped by structural and institutional inequality. According to the UCLA Labor Center, as of 2019 there were at least 1.75 million disabled adults under 65 in California who needed home care. I wrote about the future of care infrastructure in my memoir, Year of the Tiger, An Activist's Life. They are not unfeasible dreams. Change comes from wild imaginings of what is possible. In the future care infrastructure will be one that treats care as a normal part of the human lifespan and not a failure or weakness to need help. One led and designed by disabled people and others who need or provide care. One that is free, publicly funded, and not means tested or linked to employment. One that puts a primacy on self-direction of the individual, bodily autonomy, and dignity of risk rather than a formulaic, medicalized training that dehumanizes disabled, older, and chronically ill people. And this is the sound of another essential piece of equipment, a suction machine that helps me clear my lungs of secretions that I produce almost every hour. Because of 
Now, despite the hardships I experienced this year, my life is filled with joy, beauty, and gratitude. The cost of care is steep, but it doesn't have to be a burden if people truly believe their security and wellness is tied to their communities, neighbors, friends, and family. While I still feel incredibly fragile and scared about what next year holds, I know we can transform the world if we have the political and collective will to do so. Manifesting this dream from San Francisco for the California Report, I'm Alice Wong. Sometimes it's not just the cost of getting health care that's a barrier, it's getting access to that care. Ever since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, California legislators have been passing bills aimed at providing abortion access to out-of-state patients. Last month, voters overwhelmingly agreed to enshrine the right to an abortion in our state's constitution. But in some rural communities here in California, like Bishop in the Eastern Sierra, access to abortion is still extremely limited. That's where reporter Lauren Delane Miller is from. She's a student at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism, and she started hearing from women in her hometown about how hard it's been for them to figure out where to get an abortion for an unwanted pregnancy. She brings us a story from a woman we're calling Megan. Megan's in her 30s, and she says she moved to Bishop from the Bay Area about 10 years ago because she was drawn to its natural beauty and tight-knit community. By the way, we are not using her real name, and we're using a voiceover actor to protect her medical privacy. So because Megan was in California, she knew that she had the right to an abortion, but she had no idea how hard it would be to actually get one. In fact, um, when I called the first clinic, they answered the phone like, how can I help you? And I'm like, okay, I think um, I'm pregnant by accident. And she must not have heard me because she goes, oh, congratulations. The first thing we'll do is schedule you so you can hear his heartbeat. And I was like, oh, no, I don't want to be pregnant. (laughs) And she's like, oh. Megan asked if they provided abortions, and she said the mood changed instantly. So they said, no, no, we don't do that. She started to call every medical facility in the area and got the same answer. And that's how I found out that you can't even get an abortion in Bishop or in the entire Eastern Sierra. While Bishop is a small community of around 10,000 people, it's the largest one by far in Inyo County. To reach an abortion clinic from here, it's 200 miles in any direction. For this story, I spoke to four other women in Bishop who had made decisions to terminate a pregnancy, and they all shared similar stories of their struggles to access care. The reason? Rural American politics. That's Marty Kim. She's an OBGYN at the Rural Health Women's Clinic in Bishop. Last month in Inyo County, voters narrowly elected Republicans for every possible seat. Bishop is slowly turning purple, but it's pretty conservative. Dr. Kim says that the clinic sometimes performs abortion procedures if a woman's life is in danger or if she's having a complicated miscarriage but they've decided not to offer elective abortion services. Dr. Kim says if they did, a large group of staff and nurses would object. They would refuse or they would quit. You know, you can't just hire somebody new. There's nobody out there to hire. 
Some providers like her do believe in the importance of elective, or as she calls it, therapeutic abortion care. Because I guess the question is, like, you're really for abortion. Why aren't you doing them? Because I feel like my hands are tied. Dr. Kim believes the best thing she can do is to stay in Bishop and help her patients as much as she can. I'll call clinics for you. I'll try to see where we can get you in. I'll take care of you afterward. If there's an emergency, I'll take care of you, but I can't do it. Megan says she could have continued her pregnancy, but she was just starting to get her small business off the ground, and her career was thriving. No doubt in my mind, I am not in a point in my life where I'd like to have a child, and I would like one pretty soon, like two or three years, but those two or three years really matter. After realizing that there were no abortion services in Inyo County or nearby Mono County, she kept Googling to find clinics. The closest ones were almost four hours away. First, I called Reno, and they said, well, we can get you in in a month. And I'm like, that's unacceptable. Megan looked into having a medication abortion, which involves taking a series of two pills. She could even get them prescribed via telehealth, which makes it a really helpful tool for people in rural places. But Megan thought, what if there are complications? She knows it's rare, but it still made her nervous to take the pills at home without having a doctor available if something went wrong. So I ended up calling a whole bunch of different facilities before I found out that I would have to go to L.A. In the end, she found a clinic in Pomona, a four-and-a-half-hour drive from Bishop, 260 miles away. There, she faced protesters and had to be escorted in and out of the facility. It was extremely distressing to be met with that energy when I'm about to go in to do one of the hardest things I've ever done. Despite all these challenges, Megan feels fortunate that she had a car, money for gas in a motel room, a supportive partner, and the ability to miss work for several days. I had all the resources to get the procedure I needed on time and everything, but there is definitely a concern for people who do not have someone they can trust to take them when they cannot drive themselves. Megan says she was also lucky to be in a state where abortion care is legal. And she says she's actually feeling hopeful. A surprisingly high number of Inyo County residents, 60%, voted to codify the right to an abortion. So when it comes to attitudes about reproductive rights here, Megan says the tide might be changing. For The California Report, I'm Lauren Delaney Miller. And finally on our show today, California is home to so many immigrant communities who all have their eyes glued to the FIFA World Cup in Qatar right now. One of those fans who's been rooting for his home country is KQED's Sebastian Migno Buccelli. I'm at my apartment in Colma, California. It's 7.05 in the morning, and I'm up bright and early to make some coffee and watch my team Ecuador play Senegal. Our diaspora is located mostly on the East Coast, but a few of us are scattered all over California. You can recognize Ecuador or Latri because of how our soccer jerseys incorporate the colors of our flag, yellow, blue, and red. Salve patria, mi veces, oh patria. Gloria a ti. Gloria a ti. The first World Cup I can remember watching was back in 2006 when my grandma would wake up extra early on those summer game days to make ceviche or other Ecuadorian national dishes. 
My extended family would pack the house all dressed up with Ecuadorian jerseys, ready to watch and support La Tri. These moments made my parents' home in LA feel like a satellite back to Ecuador. And every time the whistle blew to start the match, we were there supporting. This year, my parents in LA, family in New York, Florida, and Ecuador have been watching together, chatting on WhatsApp in real time. We all been witnessing history being made as Ecuador beat the host country Qatar in the inaugural game. It's one nil. And then we lost to Senegal, eliminating us from the World Cup. The Ecuadorian dream is over. We're going home. Throughout the tears and sadness, my mom reminds me, hay que saber perder y ganar. You have to learn to lose and win. No matter where you're from, if your team has won or lost, we can dream about seeing them play in California when the U.S. hosts the World Cup four years from now. Until then, I'll proudly wear my Ecuadorian jersey. For the California Report, I'm Sebastian Mino Buccelli. And that's it for our show this week. We're a production of KQED in San Francisco. Our team includes Victoria Mauleon, Susie Racho, Brendan Willard, and Jessica Carissa. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.